Please be advised. The following program contains stories and accounts of true events from the lives of residential school survivors. Due to the sensitive subject matter, some participants decided to remain anonymous. These testimonials may include accounts of physical and sexual abuse and may be triggering to some listeners. If you or someone you know is experiencing pain or distress as a result of the residential school experience, you're not alone. Please call the Residential School Crisis Line at 1-866-925-4419. They are there to help, and they're available 24 hours a day. Okay. Welcome, my relatives. I just like to acknowledge the land that we reside in, the land of the Blackfoot-speaking nations, Siksika, the Kainawa, Pagan, and also after treaty number seven, we also acknowledge Stony Nakoda and Chutina, a rightful acknowledgement of the people and the land that we reside in. This is Survivors, an eight-episode podcast made in partnership with CJSW and the Department of Canadian Heritage, providing insight into the lived experience of residential school survivors and their families. The residential school system ran across Canada from 1883 to 1996. Throughout its lifetime, over 150,000 Indigenous children were removed from their homes, stripped of their cultures, enforced through a system created to destroy their senses of identity. The lasting negative impact of the residential school system continues to devastate communities of survivors. My name is Cameron Seifert. I'm a Métis individual studying the topics of sociology and international Indigenous studies at the University of Calgary. Okay. Hello, my name is Grace Heavy Runner. My Blackfoot name is Buxiganaki. I am from Ghana, First Nation, Alberta. I am a residential school survivor who attended the St. Mary's Residential School, which operated from 1898 to 1988. This is my story, but also the story of many. The average day of the residential school system looked different for every individual student. There were systematic differences, which can be considered when attempting to gain an understanding of the experience of survivors of the school. To start off with, boys and girls had their lives segregated from each other and would be treated and taught differently. The stories of survivors' experiences will vary school by school, depending on what era they went, which part of the country, which religious denomination, or whether it was after the government had taken over. How many students were enrolled? How many a child knew? And where they were from? Was the school staffed with zealots? Or were there any particularly cruel teachers? These questions are raised by the institution before a child even has to face the idea of how they will get along with the other kids. What will they do when they miss their family? 
who is going to help them if they need it? As time went on, I gave up on the notion my mother and father would come rescue my brother and I from the loneliness we felt. One evening, I decided to curl my hair with a curling iron and pretended I was a big movie actress. I gazed into the mirror, and suddenly, the mirror was yanked out of my hand, and I was slapped across the face. A taller, older girl was standing in front of me, glaring, and was very angry. I held my face, thinking, what have I done? Bullying was not uncommon from other students to occur daily. I got used to being pushed into fights or seeing fights among other girls and boys. That was the norm. The supervisors never knew what happened because no one said a word. We learned how to be silent and keep secrets. We learned how to survive. Some days when there was no fighting, everyone would get together and play sports and pick teams. After supper, all students were sent to the gym to play more sports like floor hockey and basketball. I always surrounded myself with the girls because sometimes I would see older boys target younger girls and lure them in the back room. As I got older, I feared the older boys and I isolated in the girls' playroom for a whole year. I felt so detached and so alone. I didn't know who to turn to or who to talk to. Historically, days would start for the children as early as possible. Many of the schools had children getting up at four in the morning to take care of animals or other chores around the schools. Failure to get up in time was met with physical punishment. In, in the residential school, it was all controlled, controlled environment right through and through. And there's no love, there was no affection, there was no, no emotional, positive emotional growth in there. It's all negative emotion. Here you are, a seven-year-old, and going through all that. Yeah, there was no life for us after. And not seeing our parents, that was the worst cruel thing they could do to us. The loneliness, you know, gritting your teeth, you know, sucking your thumb or chewing on your, you know, nails. We had so many symptoms, negative symptoms, and we had nowhere to go. It was like we were caged. I felt like a caged animal, probed and hit and let out of the cage to eat or to go to the bathroom. Trying to remember, you know, what we're told, you know. When you tell a kid in a mean way to do something, they're going to forget. But if you teach a child a loving way when they do something wrong, they'll remember it. We were never taught that. It was all cruelty. You know, getting whipped with a, a, a canvas that was layers and layers of canvas and then sewn together. And then the verbal abuse we had endured, the physical abuse, like our ears were getting pulled or our hair or, you know, the impatience of, of, of 
those uh, caregivers. So there's so much punishment and cruelty in, in, in them changing a heathen to a Christian. And then you had brothers and sisters, you couldn't even, you couldn't even go there and hug them or, or tell them, oh, I got hurt, I get strapped, I got, somebody's mean to me. I couldn't even rely on, on my brothers and sisters because they were in the same situation as me. It tore the family apart. Like, I thought, well, this is my brothers and sisters, and they're not, they're not trying to, they're not helping me. But they couldn't. Children as young as five were met with similar expectations of prisoners or members of the military. The bed needed to be made, pajamas folded. If a child had wet the bed, they were met with physical punishment and humiliation in front of the other kids. As the schools approached their end, morning came at a more reasonable time, but the institutional regiment remained. Okay, you're uh, starting to call me Shikam. My name is uh, Red Green. That's my Blackfoot name. Uh, my, <clears throat> my name is Clarence Wolfleg. I'm from Sixagai Nation, uh, not too far from Calgary. Well, I stayed there till, uh, well, about six and a half, I might say. Everything you do in residential schools, like it's kind of like military style. You line up little boys to the big boys, the intermediates, and uh, a lot of the priests, uh, the supervisors, the priests, they were related. They, were, they had worked in military style in England, and some supervisors were ex-Marines, U.S. Army. Well, they were sending people that. I wanted to keep us in a, in a military style environment. We we go to we wake up to the sound of the bell at five o'clock in the morning. But the persons that are milking the cows, they get up at four o'clock in the morning. They have to go and they do everything by hand. There's no machine milking machines. I I was assigned to sweep in the front steps and. Like I said, uh, going and putting up the flag, we stand there at attention. You, you line up, you stand to attention. Don't talk, you know, somebody talks, everybody gets punished. Boy, I related to today, people go to jail and penitentiary, which where I worked also. It's not any different than if they went to residential school. They have a big, big list and say, okay, but some people get 10 straps on each hand. Some people get, they, they go over the table, take their drawers down and give them 10 on the, on the bottom. These are some of the challenges I face. You know, how do those people feel that they're being punished and me standing there trying not to cry and boy, I could still feel that sting on my wrist when that, when that strap hit my, my hand. But when I'm done, I turn my head and I have a little tear coming down the corner of my eye, wipe it off really fast because I don't want the supervisor to see me crying. That's the challenge. You know, you just didn't know where to go. You know, like you said, you turned into a, like a robot. You know, programmed to to be a perfect little girl or perfect little kid at the expense of those people controlling us in every move we made, 
everything we did, said, thought, and everything. After the morning work and chores were done, the children went to breakfast. For many children, this included only bland porridge, often dry, burnt, or rotten. One common memory is how they were forced to eat gruel while the priests and nuns would enjoy full meals in their private dining rooms with fresh bread, eggs, jam, fresh fruit, whatever they wanted to bring in. Chefs in the schools historically had a completely different menu for the staff. Once breakfast was over, some of the children would clean up. Others would be sent outside to wait for school to begin. Okay, um, Mr. Wainok eats not the aki, not to do a can of tukoi amo nisus nidanik nak nakutri oisi amo residential school. My government name is Rebecca Many Grey Horses. I'm from the Blood Tribe, otherwise known as Ghana Nation. Looking back at it, you think, well, what happens when you're just going into a place and you have to learn to survive and live with each other? We weren't taught by the supervisors a love, compassion, and kindness. That sure didn't come from them. So you are just there to survive. And so you have these survival instincts, and it's either fight or flight. And so for a lot of those kids, I think that's the, that was their way of coping. And then it's a learned behavior. You just do it to, to get through your experience there. The purpose of the schools were to teach English and agriculture work, mechanics that related to the farm or servant work. The creators of the school felt that was all the children could learn. When they weren't being taught these things in school, they were being shipped out to farms and ranches to provide free manual labor sometimes for days at a time. I mean, there was no effort put into the teachers to, if your assignments were, if they were, they were late, they were late. They didn't, they didn't care. They, they just, so there was no effort, you know, really put into us. And then when I got into, got into college, it was, uh, it was, it was very hurtful because like it was embarrassing because you, you couldn't even, do any of the uh, the assignments because you know you you weren't you weren't taught the proper things. As the schools evolved, they shifted more and more into the classroom. English and lessons of Christianity occupied a significant amount of the curriculum. Children who came from homes that were deemed proper were to be bused to day schools and public schools, where they could assimilate to the children around them. Children who were not allowed to attend these day schools stayed in the boarding schools. The schools continued to be extremely underfunded, and the system had a difficult time maintaining a fully qualified staff. I remember one time we were having um, physical education or class. Um, this teacher um, were all standing in line and that one teacher started passing in front of me. Next thing he had his hand like this and he just unexpectedly hit me right where my rib cage just knocked the wind right out of me. 
And I fell to the floor and in front of the whole class. It was horrible. And I couldn't tell anybody about that, that incident. Lunch was followed by classes, which would mirror the morning. When the church was in charge, hours of the day were spent forced in the chapel. Throughout the year, sports were some of the only refuge children could find. Of the scarce positive memories of residential schools, stories about sports like hockey and soccer make up the majority. Back in the day, I, I like I said, I think sports was my, my escape for all the, the abuse that, and the, the mental and the physical and all the other abuses that, that happened in, from grade ones to grade six, from all the nuns. My, my escape was to, was to work out and, and uh, stay in physically shape. And I think that's, that's why I when, I, when I got out of high school, I, I played a lot of high school football, and, and that's what I excelled in. And when I when I got out of high school, I I played two years of they call it Prairie Junior Football League in uh, in Medicine Hat, and I, I I played I played football out of there. And then I just I just happened to be in the in the same area that one evening when they were having basketball tryouts at the college. So I threw on my runners and went in and tried out with them and so I made the team so I played both football and basketball. When you examine the residential school system, many children remember little to no supervision or presence, which led to a set of problems of their own. Bullying and fights were very common. Kids had no supervision and lived in a tense time. Many children were suffering from stresses, fears, and years of built-up trauma. I remember being bullied from my supervisor and the way they talked down to you, it was so demeaning and you didn't get any love or respect from them. So when you're being taught to be that way, you're going to turn to be that way. For me, they were supervisors. We didn't have nuns at, at St. Paul's. We had supervisors. And when you have supervisors that are bullying and bullying the students and favoritism and shaming and embarrassing them. You're going to do what you have to do to survive there. And, and those are all very negative traits. So you're going to pick those up. Another incident where uh, one of the teachers, we were playing um, floor hockey and he came from the back and he checked me into the, the concrete wall and... Um, hit my the side of my head and I could see blood and they he brought me into brought me into the hospital. I got twenty one stitches on my head. They had to stitch underneath and on top. Twenty one stitches. And after that incident he dug in his pocket and he gave me a bunch of change to go to the drive-in to buy an ice cream. And that was, you know, 
uncalled for. The children were housed in overcrowded dormitories with sometimes dozens of other kids. Once it was time to sleep, you were in bed and you were silent. Tears needed to be hidden. Crying could lead to punishment. It was common for children to wet the bed. Children who did would be beaten or face humiliating punishments, like having to wear soiled undergarments on their heads. They could also face beatings and punishments for things as little as talking in their sleep. We always got into trouble. Like I, I felt like we're always, every corner we made, we got into trouble. There's no nurturing. There was no uh, explanation. And there was no sympathy, empathy. You experienced that and you had to cry at night in your bed, at night crying softly that the, the matron would not hear you. Like we, that suffer, suffering in silence, you know. You could even go to your, your sisters. There was four of us. When we want to shed our tears, there's a tree on the east side of the school. There were just little bushes at the time. We would sit there and we'd say, boy, it's, we had a tough day. We all shed tears. We cry and hold on to each other. And today, one day I got called to give a tour of uh, Ocean College, the Ocean Indian Residential School, the way it was when I went. And the people from the University of Calgary says, wait a minute. And when I looked to the place where those little shrubs were where we cried, they've grown up to be four big trees. The victims of the residential school system were imprisoned in the schools. From the time they came, they were stripped of their individuality and identity. There was no connection remaining in them from life outside of the school. Even the memories and thoughts that children had of their life before the institution were under constant attack throughout the day. Children who were allowed to go home during the summer were only there for a couple of months before it was back to their solitary lifestyle. Lying in the darkness allowed for plenty of time feeling homesick, scared, and alone. One of the things my people went to residential school, we all, we call it an orientation. You know, we are oriented into our way of life, our language, our traditions. Before we went, then we went through what is called, this is the reality of the white man's way of life. And today, we still fight in that battle the challenges that I faced in residential school. The reserve is still called a reserve. Why do they call them reserves? And when there's animal reserves, like the parks to keep animals in there. And I often think, uh, that's why we changed our name from Blackfoot Reserve number 146 on our flag, and we changed it to Sixagon Nation. That's more. It's bad enough. The challenges we face were being contained as little 450 square miles of land, and this is the only land you can talk about. Never mind all the other stuff. You know, I, I help negotiate land claims 
And sometimes I get very angry inside, saying, what are you guys saying it's your land? 60,000 square miles was my grandfather. They looked after it. Now you're just looking at Sitka Nation number 146. So I believe, you know, the challenges that I faced in residential school, we're still in a residential school mindset. Survivors of the residential school system were essentially institutionalized from ages 6 to 16, sometimes younger or older if the school deemed it necessary. Students dealt with becoming a teenager or young adult while being enclosed in a system that infantilized and demonized them because of who they were. If we take a step further and consider the amount of abuse, illness, and mistreatment reported throughout the schools, there is no average day. There were system-wide similarities in policies, but the lived experience of each individual survivor cannot be quantified. I would like to address the youth that are still impacted by Indian residential school and colonialism. I would like to call them back home and tell them that there's still a culture here, there's still a language, there's still elders that care, and there are people, there's knowledge keepers that are um, healing from the impacts and that we're still here and that we would want them to heal from those impacts. Okay, Anniko Kakainskasmin Institute to Siksika Nation. Uh, my name is uh, Clarence Wolfleg Jr. Uh, people call me Skip. The jingle dress songs and dance comes from the Ojibwe people. The story goes that this song was given to this a lady from the Ojibwe tribe to heal her, her relative. These songs became part of the Ojibwe culture and became uh, healing songs for the people. This podcast was produced by Grace Heavyrunner, Cam Seifert, Hannah Manyguns, and Jasmine Vicarious. With music by Matthew Cardinal and Skip Wolflake. Special thanks to all those who shared stories about their residential school experience. This podcast was made in partnership with CJSW and the Department of Canadian Heritage. If you or someone you know is experiencing pain or distress as a result of the residential school experience, you're not alone. Please call the Residential School Crisis Line at 1-866-925-4419. They are there to help, and they're available 24 hours a day.